This is the Sales Gravy Podcast. I'm Jeb Blunt, best-selling author of Fanatical Prospecting and Sales EQ, and I'm here to help you open more doors, close bigger deals, and rock your commission check. Finally, new episodes of the Sales Gravy Podcast. Hi, this is Jeb Blunt, and I'm back from a three-month hiatus. Over the past three months, I've been traveling all around the world, working with sales leaders and sales professionals, giving speeches, delivering trainings, and working on some incredible sales acceleration projects. And because we've been so busy, I just didn't have time to get more podcast episodes done. And I really, truly, deeply appreciate the calls to my office, the emails, and the notes on social media asking when we would have new podcasts out because you love the podcast so much. And I truly am grateful that you believe and feel that this podcast makes an impact on your career and your life. This special episode is one that I've been saving for you for a while now. It's a conversation I had with Sean Mitchell and Henry Johnson about why you suck at prospecting and what you need to do about it. So let's get started. So Jeff, if you don't mind, would you give us uh, just a quick background on how you got into sales, how uh, you got started with everything that you're doing now? That's a long background because I started selling when I was when I was in the womb. Um, I uh, I've been in sales my whole life, and it started with being on the yearbook staff when I was in high school, and you know being the number one sell ad sales guy. I worked for Nutrisystem. I sold tons of stuff when I was in in college. Even started my own business selling uh, credit card processing in college. But I spent most of my career with the, uh, in the uniform services industry, and I, uh, I started off you know, selling industrial uniforms, ended up as a vice president of sales for the organization, and then eventually started my own company, Sales Gravy. And, you know, I love that this is, you know, this is, this is real because I really sit in a seat with my folks today. We were sitting right here and just over there in the studio and we were in here making uh, cold calls into vice presidents of sales, testing out a, uh, a new training program. And basically we were going in and asking them, you know, what they were doing, qualifying them and seeing what type of reception that we would get. But I spent, you know, most of my time selling and, or either, either that or leading salespeople and then started my own sales training company and SalesGravy is also SalesGravy.com. We're the uh, the largest um, sales employment portal for salespeople in the world. And I started that 10 years ago and we we just started our, our, our second company, a company called Channel EQ, which focuses on indirect sales through value out of resellers, that type of thing. And it's been a really good run. I mean, it's been fun, but um, I, I'm, I'm, I love that, you know, I walk into an office every single day and my team and I have got to do the same thing that every other sales team in the world has to do. We have to pick up the phone. We have to send emails. We have to get on social. We have to do everything we can to fill up the pipeline in order to survive. That, that's awesome. That's awesome. Keep, keep Keeping it going daily. Just keeping it, picking up the phone. I was watching one of your... Um, some some of your videos on on YouTube earlier earlier today talking about kind of setting up time to do prospecting. Um, I mean, can can you t- dive a little bit more into like your prospecting prospecting uh, theory and how you guys kind of go about it at Sale Gravy and you know, how you do it yourself? 
Absolutely. I think that I think that goes back to the premise that why do salespeople suck at prospecting? I mean, number one reason why they suck at prospecting is they don't actually do it. And I know that's a blinding flash of the obvious, but it's the truth. If you don't prospect, then nothing's going to happen. One of my, my buddies, Anthony Arino, says activity always solves an activity problem. So <laughs> so what 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 we prescribe and we do this in my own company is we do prospecting blocks today for example we were calling vice presidents of sales we had a prospecting block our goal was to do 25 dials in and 30 minutes um took us a little bit longer than that because we had a couple of people on the telephone a little bit longer than we expected but we learned something from it but we set up these 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 blocks and the block of time we call them a phone block it can be 30 minutes. It can be an hour. The other day ago, we were doing power 15 minutes. We were doing 15 minutes at a time as hard as we could. And then we'd take a break. We'd go high five each other, you know, get, get a, a cold drink. And then we would go do it again. And we were doing this all as a team, me included, making cold calls. And and I know that, you know, some people say cold calls don't work anymore. But, you know, we did three and a half million dollars last year in cold calls. So it's working for me. And the 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 idea is if you can if you can set aside time every single day every day every day every day and you can block that time and and, and concentrate your focus in that time you'll be way more efficient you'll get way more done you'll be more effective and if you're an inside sales and my team part of my team is an inside sales team you know, we dial all day long but we break our our time up into three core blocks a day we do three hours of power dialing every day. And that's about all that we need. The rest of the time, we're doing all the other sales stuff that we have to get done. Blocking your time is transformational for salespeople. It will change your life, and it will it will help you sell more. Now, there's one more thing, Henry, I think this is important. Guy sent me a note on Twitter last night, and my Twitter handle is at salesgravy if you're listening, but says, sends me a letter and says, uh, how, you know, how many hours did you prospect every day? And I wrote back and said, you know, one to two hours for most B2B salespeople, if you're really hitting it hard, is it all you need to fill the pipeline up? He said he prospect three hours a day, except he hasn't been doing it lately because he had too much administration work to do. So, Here's the other thing. You have to do it every day, every day, every day, every day. Yes, there are days when you can't get it all in because you've sold a bunch of stuff and you've got to service clients. Yes, there are going to be times when, you know, you've got a meeting, you've got this going on, you've got this going on, you've got this going on. That's true. But you still have to set the time aside. It has to become a default for you every day day, every day, every day, because the cumulative impact of every single day prospecting is exponential in, in, in terms of filling your pipeline up and filling your bank account up. I really, really love that. And that's one of the takeaways that I received when I read Fanatical Prospecting. Um, it's, it's, it's putting it in the calendar, carving out that time, making that time sacred uh, so that it doesn't get get uh, filled up with other things because there's always going I, I don't know if it's human nature and, and and maybe you can provide some some insight into this Jeb but um, I don't know if it's human nature but it always seems like there's something something better to do or something happening that needs to be taken care of at that very moment that you go and, and you prospect um, do you hear that a lot from sales reps absolutely I mean the number one thing we hear from salespeople is hey I don't have time to prospect but if you think about it this way, every day as a salesperson, there you, you have three choices to make. You can do things that are trivial, you can do things that are important, and you can do things that are impactful. And look, there are there are important things to do, but important doesn't necessarily mean that it's having an impact ultimately on your paycheck. And there's a, a law called Parkinson's law, and it describes how work tends to expand into the time that's given to it. However, there's an offshoot of Parkinson's law called the law of triviality. 
And when you say, is it human nature? Absolutely, it's human nature. The law of triviality simply describes that humans, human nature is that if we were given a list of things to do every day, like a list, and there were really, really impactful things in a list, important things in a list, and trivial things in a list, most people will start working on the trivial things first, leaving the, the things that are most impactful for last, and those things ultimately never get done. And if you're, you know, if you're watching, all you got to do is think about a Saturday or a weekend where you've got a list of chores to do and the way you attack the chores, almost everybody takes the things that don't matter on first, leaving the things that matter most to last. So is it better to do the, the most difficult or the most challenging thing first? For example, prospecting, get it out of the way and then do the other things after that? Absolutely. I, you know, if you think about the, uh, if you just, if you just think about prospecting as a, as a chore in sales, let's just call it what it is. Prospecting sucks. Nobody really likes to do it. There's always something better to do. We all love to close business. We all love that build relationships. We all love to, you know, move deals through the pipe. We like to build, you know, presentations, all the things we could like do demos. Nobody likes to prospect, but everybody wants to have a full bank account. And everybody wants to make a big commission check and everybody wants to stand on the mountain and say, I'm the number one salesperson. Everybody wants those things. But those that success, those things that you really enjoy doing in sales, that's paid for in advance with prospecting. Prospecting is, is the price that you have to pay for anything that you want to accomplish in sales. So the if we know that it sucks and we know that it's not fun, we know that we'll put it off. We know that if we say, I'll do it at three o'clock in the afternoon, that we're going to find some excuse. The best thing you can do as a sales representative is to come in in the morning, don't open email, don't open Facebook, don't watch cat videos, don't do any of that stuff. Pick up the phone and do a phone block. That's the first thing you should do. And what you'll be amazed is that instead of you know, worrying what's the best time to call, if you call early in the morning, most of your prospects are at their desk. You're going to get a higher pickup rate. We know that happens in our office. If we do our call blocks early in the morning, we get way better pickup rates than we do in the afternoon. You're going to be fresher, more confident, feel better. Your, your prospects are going to be in a better mood because they're just starting their day. And it just makes sense to do that. But if you don't embrace the suck of prospecting and do it in the morning, we call it eating the frog. If you don't eat the frog first thing in the morning, you know, I promise you that you'll figure out a way to put it off and you'll say, I'll double up tomorrow and tomorrow the same stuff's going to hit you. And then, you know, one day you're sitting there, you get an empty pipeline and you're, and you're desperate. And then what do you do? You, then you're doing it all day long trying to catch up. And that really sucks. <laughs> So, so when you when you think about prospecting and the way that you approach it, Jeb, are you um, doing all phone calls? Are you leading up with an email, then calling? Are you leaving voicemails after calls? Can you just walk us a little bit more through your your process and how you guys approach it? It's a it's a little bit of all of the above, and I believe in balance on prospecting. So we do email, phone, social, and but I'll I'll tell you how I feel about the email before call. It's what a lot of reps call warming up the calls. They're trying to make it warm. I have a client of mine who they had a, a process where they got a list and they would send eight emails to the list and then they would call. And it wasn't working out very well for them. One of the things that happened is they would call up and if they did get somebody on the phone, the person was pissed off because they'd sent them eight emails in a row. 
And it turned out that, that, that their, you know, their contact rates, their, um, you know, their appointment rates with those leads weren't, it was just wasn't that great. They got me on the phone looking for help as a consultant. And I, I just asked, you know, an obvious question. Why don't you just pick up the phone and call them in the first place? I mean, if you gave me a list, the first thing I would do is dial the list. Why? Because somebody's going to answer the phone. For example, today we did a cold call list of 25 VPs of sales. We had eight of the VPs of sales answer the phone, eight of them. Now, if we could have sent the email and then try to contact them on social and done all those things, probably eight of them would have answered the phone the second time we called after all that stuff. But we just picked the, 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 the list up, called those eight. We found out some information. About four of them were qualified, four of them weren't. And then that left the rest of them that we'll do an email outreach to this week, and then we'll call them again. And if we, if we know someone's really qualified, then of course, you know, we'll do everything that we can to set an appointment with them. So we may call, leave a voicemail, send an email, hit them up on social. If, you know, we were talking earlier about one of my clients has got a really long sales cycle. They go to a lot of trade shows. We know who's going to be there. We research them in advance on, on LinkedIn. We find their pictures, build a, almost like a prof profile or a dossier about them. And then when we go there, we go out and meet them and talk to them. We do all of those things. But but the, the question, Henry, and I think it's a really important one, is do I email or call? Call, pick up the phone, talk to somebody, call them. Because if you get them on the phone, at least you can accomplish something. If you send an email, you're just junking up their email box and you're not getting anywhere. And if they don't answer the phone, of course you want to use email. Of course you want to use everything that you can, but call them. I mean, I mean, I just cannot tell you how powerful the phone is. And it's it's just it's baffling to me how salespeople don't get this. I, I think it comes down to, and, and this reminds me of a um, a podcast that you and Anthony, I think, did about talking about rejection. I think it comes down to rejection. People just hate to be rejected. It, it feels it feels uncomfortable. Um, so I, I think you're right. I, I tend to personally, I grew up um, in in the sales environment where I had to, I had to use the phone. Maybe email wasn't as as valuable as it is now with alerts and. And, and tracking and so on. Um, my, uh, we've got Kellen, one of my friends, on the line here who's a sales manager for a software company. And, and this is his question here. Uh, Jeb, for a sales rep who has spent the majority of their sales career in a reactive sales role, how do you transition them into a proactive prospecting mindset without overwhelming them? Oh man, I, I love that question. And it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And it is a million dollar question. And it's, you know, if, if, for, for example, if, if I were hiring people to come work for me, and they had spent their entire life as an inbound rep, knowing that my job is primarily outbound, uh, I would probably think twice about actually bringing that person on because I think it's very, very difficult for people to make that transition. And I've seen, I've seen more people crash and burn from, you know, from that standpoint than probably any other. We use something called the sales drive assessment test. We give it to uh, our own employees, but we use it for our clients as well. And it really, it tests for that. It doesn't test for a whole lot of stuff. It tests for one thing. Will you get up every day and happily dial the phone? And some people are really good at it and some people aren't. But if I were going to do that, so if I were going to bring someone in, I would do it in a similar way that I'm working with my son right now. So my son's 18 years old and he's heading to college, but I, I want him to be a part of our business. And you can imagine if you're 18 years old and dad says, hey, get on the telephone and go cold call, 
you know, it's not met with a whole man, this is great because most people would probably rather get a tooth pulled than, you know, do a cold call. So I took him on the, on the road with me and I had him spend some time with some of the reps that I teach in one of our fanatical prospecting boot camps. And I turned my back for a minute. He got on the telephone and started dialing and he did some dials. Those dials were a lot easier than my dials. And in our world, especially we're selling employment advertising, it's a really hard sale. We're calling, we're calling really tough prospects who get tons and tons and tons of calls and emails and touches from thousands of salespeople or like 40,000 competitors in the space. So it's a really ugly space. So hardest call we make. And what I did with him is I put him in a situation where he made 15 dials and then stopped and then 15 dials and stopped. So instead of giving him, Hey, here's a list of a hundred. I want you to dial them. I gave him 15 at a time. And I said, as soon as you're done with the 15, I want you to stop, take a break, come see me, brush it off. Here's a book to read. And then I'd give him 15 minutes or sometimes we would give him something else to do that was completely unrelated to selling. And then we would do 15 minutes more and we'd do 15 minutes more and 15 minutes more. And what that allowed us to do was for, for this kid who is young and doesn't really know what he's doing and is, you know, is making some mistakes on the telephone is we're getting $60 a day out of him. And he doesn't feel like he's making $60 a day. So we're taking that whole concept of, of blocking, we're breaking it up into real small chunks and we're going a little at a time. So that would be the one thing that I would, I would say that you have to do. The other thing is if you're bringing someone in who has been in an inbound role for a long time, you, you want to set them up for success. So what typically happens is you bring people in and you give them the worst leads that you have. So you reach into your database and you get, take a pile of crap out and you give it to them and say, dial these. That's typical because you don't want to waste your best leads and your best opportunities on people that you don't trust. But if you do that, what happens is their entire experience is really hard because most of what they call on just doesn't turn into anything. So what I suggest doing is creating some lists that won't break the company, but will give them some early wins. And then again, I break them up in small chunks, a lot of coaching, a lot of handholding. And I think along the way you can, you can bring people on. But again, I think it's a, if you spend a lot of your, your life getting inbound leads, it's a tough transaction or transition to make uh, because you sp you're spending more time prospecting really than selling inbound Honestly, you, you, every call is almost a sales call. Does, does that what, make what sense? Is, what are some of those personality traits that, that you look for when you're looking for someone who you need to make outbound phone calls? Yeah, there's three, there are three core traits that we look for, and this is, this is what we test for and drive, uh, and it's optimism. So we, we want people who, you know, they, they, they make a call, someone tells them no, they go, the next one's going to say yes. And, and it's, it's almost, I mean, it's like blind optimism. And I, you know, I, I, that's me. I, you know, I make a call, someone says no. Like my son said that day, he goes, why, why did they do that? Why did they just hang up on the phone with me? And I went, who cares? Make the call. Like, to call the next one, it doesn't matter. Well, I want to know why. I go, I don't worry about why. They hung up. I can get to the next one faster. It's not a big deal. And that's optimism. You, you, know, you, just, you just look at the world and say, hey, there's, there's one more coming. The next is competitiveness. And the reason competitiveness is so important is that you are going to get rejected. You're going to have adversity. You're going to get knocked down. That is a fact. Now, everywhere in sales that happens, even in inbound, that happens. Someone's going to tell you no. So you have to have the ability to get back up again. If you think about great competitors, let's just, I mean, I just 
think about what happened with the Cavaliers this week. So, you know, LeBron, there, you know, three, three, uh, you know, three to one deficit. And, you know, he gets back up again. He doesn't quit. He doesn't, he doesn't stop. He gets back up again and he keeps going. And so do his teammates. I know this is all about LeBron, but it wasn't just him. The entire Cavaliers team, they got back up and they worked harder. That's competitiveness. If you can look up, you can get up. And we want people that can do that. And when they get, when you know, they get rejected, you know, they don't curl up like a, or fold up like an old, you know, lawn chair. They get pissed off and say, you know what? I'm going to do the next one. And I'm going to get through the next one and I'm going to toughen up. It was interesting to see my son today he got a couple of vps who were kind of mean to him and he toughened up and he went to the next one he's a competitor and and he and he changed the way he was doing things and the third one is the need for achievement so i i'm, I'm looking for people who have desire that they want something more if you have a need for achievement you know that most of the time you're going to be doing things you hate in order to get what you really want and so you're willing to pay the price and so we need people who have a high need for achievement who say, I really want to be number one. I really want to win. And a way of looking at that is they're people that win for the sake of winning. They win because they have to. It's just it's just driven. They're, I love hunters that are like that. We used to have them. I, I, when I was the VP of sales, I would go visit my, my, my locations. And I, I had great salespeople that were driven hunters. They would go out and sign contracts. You could go look in the back of their car. There'd be a signed contract. They would throw it in the back of the car and go get another contract. Even though they didn't get paid until the contract got turned in, they were all about the win. And you need those type of people. I love it. I love it. It's really, really cool to hear. Um, I'm really curious, and this may be a little bit of a tangent, but relevant to the topic. H how did you know that, that you were extremely passionate about prospecting versus, I don't know, building a sales team or, uh, you know, being a, you know, being a specialist or, or a subject matter expert in management? Why, why prospecting? Well, I, I think that, you know, the, I, prospecting is a, is a piece of the puzzle. So I've you know written seven books. I've got um, a book called People Follow You. It's really popular. Our you know our most popular training program that we teach as a company is in sales leadership and sales management. And you know we we teach sales process, both complex and and simple. We even work in the in the retail world. We work in high end retail with something called customer experience selling. So we're really all over the board. But here's the thing that's interesting. Prospecting connects all of these dots. It is, it's not a discipline in and of itself. Now, a, a lot of companies have, have split prospecting and sales, and they are two different things. And I get that, but, but, they're, but they're intrinsically connected. And when we start thinking about leadership, you know, the biggest fails in sales leadership are around prospecting. Sales leaders who don't have the courage to hold people accountable, who don't have the courage to get in there with their salespeople, for example, the question we got earlier, somebody's brand new, they're coming in the door, they don't really have this. Sales leaders who have the courage to sit down next to them and make dials with them and show them how it's done. So I think that I think that I'm passionate about prospecting because prospecting is the root of all great things in sales. And as a sales representative for, you know, for, for my companies, I've got, I've got a trophy room full of 
crystal and granite and rocks and silver and brass and all of these things that I won selling, everything was from prospecting. I started a business based on prospecting. I, I love selling. I mean, I love the sales process. I love, you know, big, huge, nasty, complex deals with, you know, 20 stakeholders in a two-year time timeline where you really got to get into it and build relationships. And I love those things. But none of that happens if you're not willing to get stuff into the pipeline. And it's almost an epidemic today because salespeople are unwilling to do that. I mean, I hear salespeople all the time. I love closing, but I'm not a really good prospector. Well, dude, I got news for you. You're not closing if you're not a good prospector. And oh, by the way, the dude that's good at prospecting will outclose you any day. 100,000%. That, that's like something I'm, I'm huge on. I, I think people try, like if you, if you don't have enough deals to close, you can't be a good closer because then no. you're just chasing things that, that really you shouldn't be chasing anyway. But you need to chase them because you need to eat. That's so right. it, 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 beco it becomes a, a, 20, a catch 2020. So, no, it's, I, I think that's huge. So, w one thing that I, I, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on is, is when you're, so when you're prospecting, right, you're going to run into people, um, yeah, the people that hang up with you. But sometimes you get just objections, right? Just a certain type of objections. Um, how are you coaching your people to kind of get past those objections? Or how are you teaching other people to, coach their teams on objections and, and facing that kind of stuff as they're, as they're uh, prospecting. Absolutely. I think that there's a couple of things. So um, if you're calling to set appointments or you're calling to gather information, that's one thing. If you're calling to move people directly into a sales conversation. So if you have a, a short cycle or even a more transactional sale, um, there's, you know, there's, there's a couple of different things that are happening there because you have to be careful that they're, they're, the, you know, you're, they're not objecting to the sale. They're objecting to giving you time. And so an example was last night, uh, I was booking a hotel room. I got shifted over somehow or another to the timeshare department. The guy gave me a pitch. I said, no, I was objecting to his pitch, not objecting to spending time with him. And, and so it wasn't a prospecting objection. It was a sales objection. But we teach a, a simple prospect process for dealing with what we call reflex responses, brush offs, and objections. And we, we typically are getting those on prospecting calls. Reflex responses are just what, you know, you say it, I say it, we walk into a store, somebody says, hey, can I help you? And you go, no, I'm just looking. That's a reflex response. You don't think about it. It just comes out of your mouth. Prospects do this all the time because salespeople call them all the time. Um, brush offs or when they're telling you something like, Hey, could you send me information? I don't have a lot of time right now. They're saying things to tell you no, but they're doing it in a way that you'll accept it because they don't want confrontation and neither do you. And an objection itself is something that's closer to the truth. For example, they may say, I used you before and we, it didn't go very well for us. That would be an objection. That would be someone saying, saying no. And what, the, what these RBOs are standing in the way of is the prospect actually giving you time. And oh, by the way, and this is important, the hardest ask in sales, the hardest close in sales is getting someone's time. It is their scarcest resource and people are crazy busy. So this makes the prospecting call doubly hard. We teach a three-step prospect um, that basically 
um, uses an anchor. And all the anchor is, is a statement that you say that as soon as someone tells you, no, you feel rejected, gives you a moment to collect your thoughts. And a moment, I'm talking about a split second, to collect your thoughts thoughts, and deal with that neurophysical response to rejection. Your your hands are getting sweaty. Your heart's beating fast. Okay. You got that, that feeling in your gut. And so, for example, if you said, I'm busy, I would say that's exactly why I called. That would be an anchor. That's exactly why I called. I say that all the time. People say anything to me. Anytime they get a rejection, that's, a, that's exactly what I called. Or I'll say that's awesome. Or I'll say a lot of people say that. But those are anchors. And I don't have to think about them. They're a reflex for me. That gives me a moment to collect my thoughts. And then what we do is we want to disrupt your the prospect's thought process. And that's because the, they're getting calls all day long from, from salespeople or emails all day long from salespeople. And so they have this certain set of expectations. And the human brain is brilliant at dealing with patterns. Once it starts seeing a pattern and the pattern all looks the same, the brain begins to ignore it. It doesn't have to worry about it. And what we're trying to do on a prospecting objection or an RBO is to turn the person around and pull them towards us. You can imagine you call them, they're trying to get off the phone as fast as they can. They're moving away from you. If, mm. if all of a sudden, for example, Henry, right behind you, you heard a really loud noise, boom, right? All of a sudden, you would, you'd flip around, you'd be looking over there, you would lose attention to me. It would pull your attention. So I want to disrupt your expectations. I want to do something that you're not expecting. So if you tell me, hey, I'm really happy with the vendor that we have, I go, that's fantastic. Anytime you're getting great service and great prices, you should never think about changing. Mm -hmm. When I say something like that and I agree with them, their brain's not ready for that. Immediately, I get their attention. If you say I'm too busy, I say that's exactly why I called. I figured you would be, so let's find a time that's more convenient for you. What most salespeople do is either go away, they just fold up, or they try to argue the prospect into believing that they're wrong. Oh, no, no, this will only take a few minutes. And there's a universal law of human behavior that simply says that you can't argue another human being into believing they're wrong. So what we do is we disrupt their expectations. We say something or do something that they're not expecting. And then we ask again, confidently and assumptively. And I ask again, how about Thursday at two o'clock? So that's what we teach people. Now, uh -huh. let me give you an example of the day. So this is, you know, this is real. This is, and you guys are real salespeople, real seed, everything. So today we were testing out a new training program that we're trying to sell into companies. And it's a virtual training program. So we pulled a list of sales VPs and we called them. And what we were testing for is what they would object to. What would they tell us no? How would we get pushback? Because what we do is once we understand what that is, we started A, adjusting what we were saying on the front end so that we, we weren't creating resistance where it, wouldn't, where it didn't exist. And we iterated during the entire call block. We got better and better and better until the end, we were actually having conversations. And we started listening to what they were telling us. And once we understood what those things were, then we were able to take that three-step process and apply it. Now, there's one more thing since we're talking about objections that, that I think is important. Whenever I'm in a training class, we do these things called fanatical prospecting boot camps. And I've got a, a group of trainers that go all over the country. And we also do those as virtual training programs. So, for example, you know, we have a, a facilitator, but it'd be like this on a video call. And we teach this way. And we always ask people, you know, how many ways can people tell you no on, on a prospecting call? Most salespeople say, well, it's infinite. I mean, they can tell you an infinite number of ways. So then we, say, get a, we get a board and we say, okay, start telling all the ways people can tell you no. And it turns out that um, 
that there's a finite number of ways. I mean, it, I was with a group that was in the staffing industry. We we came up with 11 ways that they could tell you no. There was 11 things they could tell you no. If I know mm -hmm. the 11 ways, then I can anticipate any RBO, any time. And if I can anticipate it, I can plan for it. If I can plan for it, I can create a script. I can create a response. I can do those things. So all we use is the framework, apply that to a specific situation, and and build a really short turnaround for that. And it works. And it, you know, it doesn't work every single time. I mean, you're going to try to turn around a couple of times. People are going to tell you no, but it works. And that's, that's, that's how we begin to iterate and understand, you know, what we're going to say, how we're going to say it. We don't have to do that anymore for the employment side and the advertising side of our business because we've heard them all. We know exactly what to say. I really love the idea. I think, I think that writing the objections down is really, really interesting because whether you're a sales manager or you're, you're, just, you're just an independent uh, sales rep, salesperson that really just wants to win, writing those objections down, I think will, will really shrink down the, you know, the, the thousand objections that, you that, yeah. that, that you're getting. And it'll allow you to see that there's probably maybe two, three, four, five that you get every single time and you can write out responses for them so that you do know how to respond and it doesn't take you by surprise every single time. Exactly. I mean, if you're treating an, if you're treating an RBO like it's a random event, trust me, you know, it, you're, you're, you're go, oh, 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 because, you know, your brain is just you know, totally <laughs> fried. Because when you get told no, I mean, the feeling of being told no, you, you said earlier, you know, it sucks. People don't like it. Well, it's actually a real feeling. You know, it's like when people say, well, you know, let rejection roll off your back. I'm like, you know, only the people that can do that are psychopaths. The rest of us, we, we really <laughs> do feel it. So if we, you know, if we, if we know that that's real, if we have the turnaround, then we don't let all of the, you know, the chemicals that are brewing in our brain and the adrenaline that's rushing through our blood, we don't let all that get in the way. We just know what to say when people say that to us. So I've got another question coming in, Jeb. Um, as it relates to in-person prospecting, do you feel that there is a weekly or monthly time allotment for sales reps that should be in the field making face-to-face -face introductions as opposed to making phone calls? Um, so here's here's what, what I believe about in-person prospecting. Now, again, if you're in a really short cycle transactional sell. So you're, let's say that you're doing door-to-door -door sales where your prospecting call and your sales call are blended. What I'm about to say doesn't make sense, okay? So it, it, in some, some cases it does. It, there are door-to-doors who have appointments, but most B2B field reps you're making you're making phone calls in order to set an appointment so that you can go get face to face and have a planned sales call. That's the reason why you're there. Otherwise, you know, why have you in the field? We would just have you on telephone selling. So the way that you should should manage your your in-person prospecting calls is not on a time allotment. It is on a numbers allotment. Here's what I mean. Every day, for example, let's just say, Sean, you come in the morning and you make uh an hour to an hour and a half of prospecting calls. Your goal every day is to set two to three preset appointments where it's on their calendar, on your calendar, and the prospect is expecting you to be there and at a certain time. When you make those appointments, you should put a stake in the ground or a pin in the map, and then you should get into your database and you should look at other prospects that are around that particular appointment. So you're going out, an appointment is high value. An appointment has a higher probability of moving to the next step than a, just a, a cold call knocking on someone's door. So if you've got that, you know you have that in there, you've got, you've got a reason for being there. And then if you, if you go into your database and go look around, all of a sudden you can build a route around that particular appointment. 
I suggest five. I think five good prospecting calls that you can plan for around each appointment. So if you're going on two appointments a day, you're making 10 in-person prospecting calls a day. That's pretty good for a field rep. And, and what's beautiful about this is they're not just random calls. You can actually plan for them. I know where they are. I can look into my database. I can pull a sheet on them. I can even print that out. I can go to their website. I can come up with a couple of provocative questions that I want to ask walking through the door, something funny that I'm going to say, or I can use some existing relationships in the area to bridge into those by saying, oh yeah, you know, we, we take care of Henry down the street. He said that we should talk. I can do those things. And then here's what's beautiful. I've got maybe five uh, planned IPPs and then I've got my set appointment. And then we do something with, called T-calls. And that means that um, I've got my plans, but as soon as I get to my appointment, I look to my left, look to my right, look behind me, especially if you're an industrial sales rep or you're working in an office apartment, if you're in medical and you're working in medical places, there's people around you. And I knock on those doors. Those are kind of cold as well, but we have these amazing things. They're cool. They're called smartphones. So before I walk in the door, I can pull up their, their website. I can look at them. I can have a little bit of information and I have something to compliment them on and ask a question. And so, Kellen, what you're doing is you make yourself amazingly efficient because instead of saying I need to be out there for so long, which is mean is meaningless with knocking on doors because I could be out in the field for an hour and decide I'm going to drive to two of them that are 45 minutes apart. I become super efficient. I become much more effective. And the and what happens is all of those knocks, many of those will turn into better qualifying information in my database, which makes my database stronger. But at the same time, a lot of them are going to turn into appointments for the next week. And that's going to make me a better rep and fill up my calendar. Awesome. Uh, I, I have another question from um, from my buddy Dan. He couldn't get in on uh, Google, but he texted me. He said, "So, so how has the internet affected telephone-based prospecting? Um, how would you recommend companies that are scaling to change their model?" Uh, and I guess what he was talking about is, um, and he says this is. Now people can do a lot of research online. How does that affect, you know, being able to prospect uh, via the phone? Well, I mean, as he's talking about, if he's talking about the customers being able to research online, I mean, absolutely. They can research online, but unless you work for a company that is, is able to bring in enough leads to feed everybody all day long, you're going to have to do outreach. And I, like, I believe in inbound. I mean, I think inbound, you know, inbound uh, prospecting, inbound marketing is strong. It means something. It's good. And it, and it definitely puts food on the table. We spend a lot of money inbound prospecting and inbound marketing. But we never can get enough. If we don't make our calls, if we don't reach out to people, we're going to starve to death. And so when you put inbound with outbound, you get, you, get, you get powerful. And let me give you an example of this. So we had a ton of inbound leads that came to us over about a six-month period that we had called and we had you know, felt them out. We had qualified them. We sold some of them, but most of them we didn't sell. And that's true for most inbound leads. You're not selling most of the, of the leads that come through the door. And so we were, we started off June a little bit slow. We just weren't selling the deals that we needed. And I was getting a little bit panicked, I'll be honest with you, because the, the deals weren't coming in the door. So we went back and grabbed that list of inbound leads and we put together a call and email campaign towards to, to them. So we were, we, we called every single one of them, boom, 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 picked off the ones that we could get pick off. And then we did an email campaign with a, a special offer. And then we looked at all the ones that were opened and we called all of those folks. And then we emailed them again. And then we came back and called the entire list again. And you know what? We're killing it in June. We're rocking it. 
Those were inbound mm -hmm. leads that came to us via the internet, but now we're calling them. Now, mm -hmm. the flip side of that for salespeople, yeah, you can do the you can do the research, you can go out there and look, you can find out anything about any any prospect, anytime, anyhow. But the internet is also a reason why salespeople suck at prospecting because they try to get every single duck in the road to know everything about anybody before they actually pick up the phone. And, you know, I'm crazy about this. I, if I'm dialing and I really need to know something about you, I'm doing that research before I'm in my phone block. I do not research and dial at the same time. And mm -hmm. so for me, to, and this is just my opinion, is the, to, I hear people say sales is harder than ever before and everything has changed and blah, 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 blah. Sales is hard but it is not harder than it's ever been before. I've been in sales when it was hard. I've been in sales when there were phone books, I mean, actual phone books. I know the millennials in the <laughs> audience are like, what's a phone what book? What are those? <laughs> yeah. I've been in I've been in sales where the C, the CRM was a box of index cards. I've been in I've been in sales where you truly were calling in and you had no information, didn't know anybody, you couldn't find out any, anything. You had to do everything on your own. Today, it information's ubiquitous. And this mm -hmm. whole, you know, this whole idea that, you know, you can't call because people are finding things out on the internet. This is a myth that a group of people who have vested interest in telling you this are telling you so you'll buy their software. The truth is, is that if you sit around waiting for people to interrupt you, they will not. You have to interrupt them and you have to use every tool at your disposable at your disposal to do that. You, you know, something that's funny about that is. HubSpot, who's an inbound like marketing company, actually does outbound sales. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Mark Roberg and his team over there are yeah. dialing out every single day. And I'm yeah. a HubSpot customer, by the way. And I was yeah. sold on HubSpot on a cold call. They cold called me. Yeah. So yeah, everybody's gonna do it. I'm inbound's great. Inbound works. And if you're if you're a you know, if you own a company or you're the marketing VP, you should be doing everything you can to get great inbound leads in. But here's the other thing that I think everybody needs to remember about inbound leads. The best, the most juicy, the most opportune prospects in your market, in your territory, in your industry are not responding to web forms. They don't have to because everybody's calling them. I love it. I absolutely so, love it. So um, I want to get. So we've got about fifteen minutes left, and I want to get really, really tactical, Jeb. Um, talk to the sales rep who is sitting in the seat. Um, okay, so so he or she knows that that they need to set to, to time block and to set something out like first thing in the morning and and maybe first thing after they get back from lunchtime. Um, talk about uh, call volume. Do um, do they leave voice messages? Do they not? Can you, can you get really tactical with with good strategies that are effective that get responses? So let's talk about voicemails first of all. So just think about how long it takes to leave a voicemail. Somewhere between 30, 30 seconds and a minute. So if you take a, say, let's just take we we took a thirty minute phone block, and you dial and you know. And, and by the way, this is the truth. So everybody that's listening and watching, most of your calls are going to go to go to voicemail. Get over it. That's what's going to happen. So most of your, your calls go to voicemail. If you leave a voicemail on every single one of them, and let's just say that during that call block you made 20 dials and half of them went to voicemail, what's well, 10 minutes that you spent leaving voicemails? And if you think about the voicemail return rate on the typical, you know, B2B outbound prospecting call, it's somewhere between two and five percent. So you spent 10 minutes of your time on a really low probability return on that investment. 
So the thing about voicemail is this. The question is, should I leave a voicemail? And the answer is, I'm not going to tell you whether you should or shouldn't. I'm going to tell you that you only have so much time every single day. And how you invest that time is going to determine how much money you make. In other words, the way you invest your time is going to limit your income or it's going to grow your income. So if you're going to invest your time, you want to put your time investment in high value or high return on investment activities. So when when I think about voicemail, the way I do this is I, I leave a voicemail when it matters. So that goes to how do you organize and build out your call blocks? If, if I'm a rep, my first call block of the day is going to be to what we call um, HPPs, our, 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 our high probability prospects. We call it a prospecting pyramid. So you build a list with the best opportunities up top and the opportunities you may not know a lot about at the bottom. So I'm dialing in. My first 10, say, to 15 dials should be prospects that are qualified moving or in the buying window that I know a lot about and that have a need or a high propensity to buy my product because I'm able to create a need with them. I'm calling them to set an appointment or move them into an immediate sales conversation, move them into a demo or discovery call, whatever the case is. But I'm calling my highest probability prospects first. Now, in, in most databases, there's only going to be a handful of those every single day. From there, I move to my, my next group, my next group, my next group until I move down. So I'm starting my day off with my best opportunities and I'm probably going to roll through, you know, a half an hour to an hour call block. I'm going to take a break. During that break, I'm going to update my database. I, I don't believe in updating databases while you're dialing. Uh, I, I know that some systems require that. I know that some companies have built some CRMs that make me cringe because it takes so long for a rep to do a call. I mean, you're taking two to three minutes between calls. It's no wonder people can't get through a call block. But what we typically do at my office, and there's one person that doesn't do this, but she's a savant. Um, what we typically do is we build a list and we'll either print it out or we'll put it on a screen and we'll dial the list. And then we take some time to go update. So it only takes us 15, 30 minutes to update the, the database, sometimes less than that, because we're not talking to that many people anyway. And uh, and then we'll roll into uh, a potential email block or our social block. But I'll typically say I'm going to do two, two to three phone blocks in the morning. Afternoon phone blocks, like right after lunch, those type of things are just not as productive as prospecting blocks in the morning. So if I'm a rep, I'm going to do the bulk of my prospecting first thing. And if I'm doing a prospecting block after lunch, it might be an email block. And the nice thing about email, and we were alluding to that earlier because of some of the cool tools that we have today, I can do email anytime. I, mean, I, can, I can put together an email block and I can have my email block go out at eight in the morning. So, for example, I've got a client that uh, they'll do the prospecting block in the morning. They'll take the prospects that they don't talk to. They'll they'll drop that into an, an email system, create an email for them, send that out. Um, they'll schedule it for eight in the morning while they're doing their high value prospecting block at eight o'clock in the morning. That email's hitting. And then right after that, um, you know, you, because you can get alerts and you can see who opened it, they pull all the opens and they dial them right after that. And that, that, that works because if a person opens your email first thing in the morning, it tells you that they're next to their phone, they're at their desk, they're holding their smartphone, one of those things. And I think it's different for everybody. So I, you know, I, I really hate giving people like prescriptive, here's exactly how you have to do this. I think you have to find your comfort zone, but I will tell you that if you move your prospecting blocks to the afternoon, you can tell me all day long, you can make up all the excuses you want to, you can whine, complain and tell me that you, your afternoons are better. And I'm going to tell you that you're a liar and I'll prove it to you. You're a liar. 
the best time to call is in the morning for most salespeople. Now, if you're selling real estate or you know high-end B2C or life insurance and you're selling to consumers, of course you're gonna call at night. But that's not what most of the people you know watching this this uh, this podcast are are in business to business, and we know that business operates on pretty much an eight to six, eight to five calendar or time clock. Brilliant. And and I'm curious to know, does does the high volume change as your ticket item increases? Are you focusing more on, you know, a smaller handful of, of people if you're selling, let's say, a half a million or higher product? Well, typically, if you're if you're like if you've got a really you know high ticket item that's got a really long sales cycle, so it's you know when you're getting that high high end. I mean, if you're selling industrial equipment, the the sales cycle actually could be lower, but the you know but the cost could be higher. So so but the so you've got complexity at at the same time that you don't have a cycle. So but typically complexity and cycle tend to tend to correlate. Does that make sense? And and so when you're in a uh, a market where you have high dollar volume and complexity, as a rep, you typically have a smaller database to work with. So, for example, you know I grew up in in uniform services, and when I was just a you know a field rep, I wasn't doing you know in national accounts, wasn't doing regional accounts. You know I had ten thousand prospects in my database, and so, you know most of our reps had somewhere between three and five thousand, a pretty big territory. So, but most business to business business services reps are going to have about five thousand deals or opportunities in their territory. If you're an enterprise rep, you might have 50 or 80 or 100. I mean, you're, you're, the, the numbers are going to go down. If you work in a niche industry with a complex product that has a high volume, I mean, or a high, or a high ticket on it, you're going to have a handful of, you know, of opportunities. Now, but this is, this is where we have to start getting, and we'll just say keeping it real. <laughs> Generally, if you're in a complex environment in a long sales cycle, the stakeholder group that you're dealing with is pretty wide and sometimes pretty deep. So you're dealing with with buyers, and there's typically two types of buyers in complex accounts. There are are buyers who have the ability to write a check. They can they can they can fund your deal, and there are buyers who can say yes. In other words, they can sign a contract. Sometimes they're the same person, but a lot of times they're not. A CFO funds it, and say a you know a senior vice president says yes. Then you have people we call them amplifiers, but you have you have amplifiers, and the amplifiers are people that are saying, hey, we have a need, we have a problem, we have an issue. So, and I give you an example of that, Sean. We had a, a client that. <clears throat> they're selling a, a a product that the CEO has to approve. But the CEO is never, ever, ever, ever going to move if the people that use the product don't have a problem with it. So the prospecting calls actually began by calling frontline people who were using this product and talking to them to find out where there were issues with the competitor. Those were There were a lot of prospecting calls. You might call 10, 20 people in an account and build a relationship with them. Then you have seekers. And, and Henry, when we're talking about those inbound leads, those are your uh -huh. seekers. Seekers are also what we call Seymours. They're, they're the people who someone sent them to get information. They will eat you alive, steal your time, take things away from you. you got to get away from those. But sometimes those seekers have the ability to influence. You've got influencers. You've got influencers who are naysayers. You've got influencers who can influence the deal. You've got influencers who can influence the buying process. You've got to be able to work with them and shape them and not get stuck with them. And then you've got coaches. You've got to build a coach and you got to develop coaches who are on your side and want to work with you. So, Sean, you may have 100 prospects in a database if you're an enterprise sales rep. 
but your most of your prospecting is going to be on the phone developing and building out that that network and oh by the way if that's your database you're probably going to get one or two maybe three or four opportunities a year maybe that are going to move into the pipe and it's it's basically on a bio window open or a trigger event and so a lot of your prospecting is is paying attention what's going on touching base with people going in and during doing early discovery you know making sure that you're not doing demos too early but you're doing some some small micro demos early enough to kind of get people bought in and and again, and that changes. I mean, if you've got 500 prospects, it's a little different. If you've got 1,000, it's a little different. If you've got 10,000, I mean, I've got one of my where it says 30,000 prospects. The volume is massive. You know, we've done that all day long. So, so you have to look at your world that way, but you have to understand that the more complex the deal, the higher ticket, the more people that are involved, and, and, the, and you have a fiduciary responsibility to your company to make sure that you know every single human being in that account that has any level of influence on that deal and that you know who they are, what they're doing. And Henry, this is how you begin using the internet because you can connect with those people. You can get to know them. You can work with them, but you begin doing that process. So your prospecting shifts and changes just a little bit. Um, and it, it, um, it's something that that will also shift with your tenure in the account. If you're brand new, you're going to be calling everybody. If you're, you know, if you're, if you've been there for 20 years, you know the buying windows. So you're going to be making really strategic prospecting touches. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Oh, perfect sense. Perfect sense. We, we, we're going to take one more question from uh, our viewers, and then we can go ahead and wrap up. Um, so, uh, Jeb, I agree with your concept of making multiple touches to qualify a qualified prospect in order to build familiarity. However, when do you really feel it's time to move on and reconnect at a later date? Any advice on email or call hooks before you move on? Well, let's, let's talk about familiarity for a second. So the law of familiarity says that the more familiar a prospect is with you, the more likely that they will engage. And this is where marketing comes in to some extent. And, but if, you know, Sean, you were describing, you, you started off working with a, with a startup. You were employee number six. You know, when you called, they didn't have any familiarity with you. So you're like creating that from the ground up. Exactly. And that happens a lot with startups. So, so, so today, the calls we were making a day were part of that process. We, we have to look at a long-term strategic campaign. So when we, when we think about that, Kyle, I mean, part of what we're thinking about is how do we build a strategic prospecting campaign that helps us create that familiarity? So my first question that I would ask you if you were if I was sitting down with you as a coach, I would say, OK, the prospects that you feel like you want to you want to go through this process of building familiarity with, are they qualified? Are they high potential? Are they dream accounts, conquest accounts, target accounts? Where do they fit? Because you can't you can't really have that level of engagement with every prospect in your database. Now, if you're an enterprise rep, Sean, you got 100. You're gonna, You're doing that with everybody. Lead nurturing never stops like you're it's always on. Because you can't afford to ever quit. But if you've got 5,000 prospects, you're going to pick a handful of them. And what I typically do, Kellen, is I look at, I look at a group and I say, okay, well, I'm going to have – I'm going to pull – maybe my top 100 prospects in, in my territory, and I'm going to focus on them. And I'm going to have identified those top 100, 100 using, say, my ideal you know, prospect profile, some type of qualifying information. When I was in the uniform industry, it would be when the, when's the contract coming up. So if I knew their contract was coming up, uh, I'm doing everything I can until I don't sell them and they sign another contract. As soon as they sign another contract, I'm moving on because I, I can't do anything with them for the next three to five years. So 
so to the, the long that was the long answer to your question kellen the short answer is is you know when to move on when they're no longer fit your ideal prospect profile you know if the person says like i'll give you an example last night guys trying to sell me timeshare i said you're a sales guy, I'm a sales guy. I'm telling this up front so you don't waste your time. So you can go spend your time on someone. I will never buy a timeshare ever, never. And he hit me, you know, he tried to overcome that. I said, you're really good. Read my lips. Never. I will never buy a timeshare. And he smiled and said, okay, I tried. And I said, I know somebody's listening to the call. You did a great job. This is fantastic. But but he got, the, it was time to move on. I was no longer qualified. I was not qualified at, at all. And I think you have to use your good judgment there. And you know, if someone says never, ever, ever, you move on, you always come back. I mean, I somebody says, don't call me back. I'm going to call them back. I'm going to call them back tomorrow. I don't want to be a stalker, but I'm going to call them back. Uh, the second thing is um, call hooks or, or, or email hooks. Um, on, on call hooks, I don't know your, your industry, your product, so it would be really difficult. Um, there's a chapter real in the book. Real estate software. Uh, what's it? Real estate software. Real they serve software. the real estate industry. Yeah. So if you start the real estate industry, I mean, your call hooks, I'm, there's a chapter in here on messaging. Um, but th if you're in the real estate industry, you know, the call hooks really going to be around um, what's important to the, the real estate brokers. I'm assuming you're dealing with brokers. What's important to them? What's driving them? So right now, the real estate market in a lot of places is absolutely red hot. And so you, we all know that, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008, um, it, it just completely bombed. It was the worst real estate market ever and there are still some markets that are trying to recover but a lot of them are smoking right now and we know that because our phone's ringing from real estate companies who are calling us to come in and train and help their real estate agents do a better job with prospecting so what i would be focusing on on hooks are right now given you know where where the market is and where you're prospecting into what are the biggest issues or pains and i hate to use pain because pain is a real issue for me, but problems or emotional things that are keeping your brokers from doing what they love to do. And what they love to do is go out and make money selling real estate. So I would focus on those as, as core hooks. And what I would do is go through the, go through the messaging chapter in fanatical prospecting, take a look at that. There's another resource that I would recommend as well. Um, uh, Mike Weinberg wrote a book called New Cell Simplified. I, I referenced it in, in fanatical prospecting. He's got a great you know, a couple of chapters on building your sell story. That process can also help you with hooks, but I would be, I would really be focusing on um, what, what problem do you solve? Where are you able to immediately connect with them emotionally? And you know that because you talk to enough, enough brokers that won't work. If you, if you're, you know, if you're, say you're trying to get into, I don't know, um, you know, South Dakota, North Dakota, maybe North Dakota, where maybe the real estate market isn't good. I don't know. I've never been to North Dakota, but, um, and, uh, and somebody's going to say something ugly to me. I know, but it's cold there and I'm from the South. So, but you know, maybe it's not great there. Maybe, you know, in Miami, if you're, you know, if you're in the condo market, it's huge. I think if you do, if you understand that, then it's going to shift from market to market. But I would, I would, that's what I would do, Sean, is I, and Carolyn, I would, I would focus on that. Awesome. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up and uh, we'll wrap up with a few questions here that I think are, are really going to be relevant. My, my daughter <laughs> waving. Hey, um, so, um, what about tools? Uh, tools for prospecting. Let's say you're a new sales manager, you're a new VP of sales. 
Um, what tools do you find are working well? What, what do you see that your clients are using that are working to help um, prospect more efficiently? There's, it's the, the number of tools is, I mean, it's, it's a plethora and there are new ones coming on every single day. I, I, the number of apps that come in, it's, it's incredible. So there's, there's tons of them. I can tell you that, uh, you know, Salesloft is a, is a tool that works really well. There are a number of companies that are out there. Velocify is a, is a, is a company that I, I, I think a lot of, and they've got a, a process that, you know, automates the dialing um, of the phone, um, inside sales.com's got a bunch of stuff out there that, that allows it to happen. And there, you know, there are mixed reviews on, on all of those products, depending on who you are. Um, for, you know, for field sales, those things don't work that great for field sales. I mean, honestly, the, the easiest thing for me is, is segment your database, keep your CRM up to date, build better lists out of your CRM. And if you do those things every single day, a lot of these tools don't matter you know, nearly as much. I think the CRM is your greatest tool ever. I think most salespeople treat it like a trash can instead of a gold mine. And your job is to fill in the jigsaw puzzle and use all of the, the tools that are robust and th that you have, HubSpot's got a brand new, if you're an independent, they got a brand new free uh, CRM out there. We use salesforce.com. We think Salesforce works great for us, but there's others like Nimble and you know Microsoft Dynamics just bought uh, LinkedIn. And I, I think the world, I think Dynamics, I think Microsoft's done a beautiful job of making some major um, changes and upgrades and integrating that into 365. There are a couple of tools that I really love around research and and, uh, and email. So we use um, two different tools for email. We use Tellwise and I love Tellwise. And I like the folks over at Tellwise. It's a fantastic little tool. It allows you to combine email and chat and even the telephone. It's a beautiful little app. And I, and, and I, say, I hate to say it, so I shouldn't say it's a little app. It's a beautiful app and it works. And I love it. I'm a big fan of Tellwise. Another company that I love is KiteDesk and we use KiteDesk as well. It does, they, they're fantastic for research. They help you organize your call blocks and the folks over there are getting better and better and better and they're improving every day and they're adding on features. Um, you know, HubSpot is, has just launched um, HubSpot Sales Pro and we also use HubSpot Sales Pro. So we're, we're, we're using that for email. We're not using their CRM because we're with, with Salesforce and we, I've been using Salesforce for a, a long, long time and I, and I just love the tool. It works for, for us. Uh, there's a couple other other companies that I think a world of Serious Insight, another one that helps with um, with your you know with your email, and then just a plethora of of social tools that out there that you can tap into. HubSpot, I use HubSpot for inbound marketing, and I use HubSpot for primarily my social research and keeping care you know keeping track of people. And I think HubSpot does a really nice job of integrating all of that. And I'm sure that there are you know there's somebody listening to this. There's probably you know 10,000 companies out there that have you know other tools. I mean there's Salesloft out there that I've heard I've, I've not used Salesloft personally, but I've heard beautiful things about Salesloft and and what they do from research and getting you good lists and helping with leads so and i i just think as a as a as a you know as a business owner you know my biggest concern with all the tools is dialing us in to using the ones that make the most sense for us and not overcomplicating it and for example with salesforce and you know all the salesforce consultants hate me when i say this we've we don't have customization we've stripped it all down i've been through every customized 
process you can do with Salesforce. I've built it from the ground up. I've, I've, you know, pushed it across enterprise. It, it basic works. Like don't overcomplicate this. It's you <laughs> reaching out and touching a prospect and asking for something. And that's something you're asking for is their time. So most of the tools should help you organize so that the time that you spend in your call block or your email block or your social block is well used, is efficient and effective and should make you more productive. And if it's not making you more, more productive, I don't care how good it is. Don't use it. Move on to something else. And for me, nothing works better than this crazy thing. It's called a phone. I use this, right? In a list. You give me a list and a phone, and and I'll make you a lot of money. It's it's so true, and and really really good ones. Some of those I hadn't heard of. Um, one of my sales mentors uh, says the best CRM is the one that you actually use. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's key. You just have, you just have to use it and utilize it. And sometimes the one that you use is really the, the best one for you. Yeah. Um, for, for someone who's listening to this either live or on the recording, um, let's say it's a sales rep and they like what you're talking about. Where can they buy your book? Because it's awesome. Well, <laughs> thank you. We've been really blessed with, with Finago prospecting and and this, I got it right here. This is gratuitous advertising. Uh, so <laughs> yep. um, you can get, you can get Finago prospecting, get any of Barnes and Noble 640 stores across the United States. You can buy it in most airports um, in, in the major cities. M many of the train stations and the bookstores will have it there. You can clearly, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at, um, at, at you know, books a million at any of the online locations. If you want a signed copy of it, so if you want my autograph on it and a little bit of swag that comes with that, you can go to salesgravy.com and go to our store and you can, you can buy it there. The, uh, but it, it really anywhere that you can buy a book, you can buy fanatical prospecting. And if you do buy fanatical prospecting, so a couple of things, if you go to a Barnes and Noble store and you hold my book up and you take a selfie with you in the book and you post it online and you tag me, I'm at sales gravy in most places, but you can tag me Jeb Blunt. Uh, I will send you a box of really cool, Fanatical prospecting swag. So um, some of the things we talk awesome. about in the book, like the door hangers, those type of things, I'll send you that. So, but you have to go, you have to do it at Barnes and Noble and take a picture of yourself. But uh, but if you if you do buy the book, my phone number and my email address and all of my social handles are in the book. But you can get me on Twitter. I'm at Sales Gravy on Twitter. Sean, you've been on Twitter. You know I'm a Twitter nut job, so I love Twitter. Mm -hmm. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page. Um, I think the Facebook page is Jeb on Demand, and my in my regular Facebook is um, Sales Gravy. I'm on Snapchat. I Snapchat really poorly. I'm awful at it. <laughs> but I'm also on Instagram, and I love it when people connect with me. And if you write me, I, I you know I almost always say, hey, I hate to say I guarantee, but I promise you that I'll I'll write back and I'll respond to you. And if you you know if you've got comments about the book, please please get in touch with me. Um, cause man, I love, I love talking to people who love fanatical prospecting. It's been, it's been wonderful. You've been, you've been incredibly responsive and, and for the amount of Twitter followers you have alone, uh, I'm, I'm always impressed that, that you're almost always responding to something that I'm, you know, uh, saying to you. So it's really, really cool that, that you're, that you're still responding to people, even though you've got such a wide swath and a wide reach. So last question is so for the, the sales manager or the company that's really loving this, um, how do they reach out to you to hire you for, for, for your consulting services? 
so the the best thing to do would be to call us. We're at 844-447-3737. That's 844-447-3737. My email address and and I'm somebody's going to spam me. Go ahead. That's cool. Everybody does. I'm I'm Jeb <laughs> at SalesGravyTime. Like I've given this thing out, and if I get about a thousand emails a day, and most of it's just crap. So, um, but I <laughs> I deal with it. Uh, but it's Jeb at SalesGravy.com. If you've got a question and you want to talk about what we do, especially our fanatical prospecting boot camps that are fun, they 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 generate results. I mean, your salespeople will walk out with either deals in their pocket or appointments um, from from our from our boot camps. Um, give us a call and we'd love to, to talk to you and learn about you and see if we'd be a fit. Awesome, that's incredible. Awesome. Thank, Jeb, thank you so much. Um, you've been you've been a, a hero, a sales hero of mine for a while. Uh, ever since I've uh, I read your book, um, and and you've added thousands of dollars to my bank account from from what I've learned from the fanatical prospecting. So uh, thank you a ton for all that you have invested into me and the time that you've invested into uh, the audience here uh, tonight. 